Throughout law school, you have developed a number of habits that have been designed to maximize your grades, maximize your efficiency, maximize your available time for going to parties, whatever the case may be, you have adopted a methodology in law school. And that's great. And that got you through law school and it achieved for you or is achieving for you the things that you needed to do. However, those habits are not necessarily going to translate particularly well into practice. And some of them in particular are going to frustrate your abilities to achieve more results, not necessarily in your career, but in terms of actually being a better lawyer. That's what we're going to talk about today. My name is Chris Hargraves. I'm from tipsforlawyers.com and welcome to this discussion. The first thing we're going to talk about, as you might expect, is something to do with legal drafting. It is, I know, a bit of a hobby horse of mine, this way of expressing ourselves in writing, which is what we do the vast majority of the day. And so it is, in fact, fairly important. The problem is that most law schools in most places are not helping you learn effective legal drafting. They are teaching you and you are embracing because you must an entirely different type of drafting, particularly around academic style writing. So probably what you have done is throughout the course of your law degree, you have realized there are particular approaches, particular methodologies and particular frameworks you can use to write an assignment, to present an exam answer that will achieve good results for you. These are the ways you are demonstrating your knowledge to the lecturers, to the professors, to the academics that are marking you. And therefore, that's what you're going to do. It's a no brainer. If you're getting distinctions and high distinctions using a particular methodology, then you're not exactly going to change that. The problem is you are getting marked objectively in most cases in most universities, something I'm not necessarily 100 percent with, although I completely understand the reasons for it, back in the real world, you are going to get marked subjectively. This means you cannot simply take the problem solving skills and the methodology you have used in law school and just attach it to real life legal problems. I'll give you the absolute classic, and this is the way we approach writing advices to clients. The first time you are tasked with writing an advice, and it may be early on, or it may be slightly later after you've done file notes and help people with research and so on. But when you're drafting an advice to your client, your natural habit is going to be to present that advice in the form of an exam answer or an assignment. Why? Because that's what you've become used to. And so probably what you're going to do is you're going to repeat the facts. You're going to have a list of documents. You're going to set out some law, and then you're going to apply the law to the situation right at the very end of what is potentially quite a long letter by that point. This might all be fine from a legal reasoning perspective. This is essentially your research memo that has allowed you to work effectively through the process and to arrive, hopefully, at a meaningful answer for the client. The problem is your client most of the time doesn't care about most of those things. So most clients, I'm, I'm being very wishy-washy here because there are going to be some clients who do want to dig into this stuff. But most of the time, most clients do not care about the following. They do not care about you writing back to them a summary of the facts that they told you in the first place. Would you want to spend your time reading that? Probably not. And yet most advice letters start with that. They do not really care 
most of the time, most people about which section of which act applies. They don't care about case citations. They don't care about the landmark decision from the High Court. They don't care. They don't want to know. What they care about is the last bit, which is this, what is the answer to their question? Do they have a case? What's that case look like? How much is it going to cost? These practical things that actually help them make decisions. Now, I understand why we do some of those other things and why we naturally want to include them, but you need to think about the way you're presenting this advice because you are now writing for a real person. You are not writing for an academic. And the number one assumption that we make that is dramatically wrong is that like our university lecturers, the recipients of our letters are going to be forced to read everything we've actually written. But they don't. They read the bits that they care about. So there are ways of constructing a letter that can, sure, protect you on the one hand by ensuring that you have the facts correct and the assumptions you're making are right, but also presenting a meaningful advice to the client in a way that actually helps them. And these are the things that are not coming up in the marks you are getting in university. You need to think about who your client is, the context in which they function, the nature of their question, how sophisticated they are, what kind of language you can use. These more subtle, subjective, nuanced things need to flow through into your letter writing. You can't just default to your law school academic writing process. Right, enough on that one. The next one is about time management. By and large, at university, you can spend an unlimited amount of time on any question provided your thing is delivered by the deadline. This is not the case in most legal practices most of the time. You spending more time than you have been given, and let's assume you have been effectively delegated to and someone has actually given you some constraints, some parameters. If they say don't spend more than two hours on this and you spend five hours on it because you just weren't completely satisfied with the work product, that costs someone real money. So who do you think should pay for that? Should your firm just wear the cost of that or should you build a client for it? Because those are the two obvious options unless you're volunteering to stump up the extra money to pay for it. You need to be aware of the commercial realities of the decisions you are making. So bringing that mentality in where within the confines of the start date and the end date, you can spend an unlimited amount of time on something is not a good idea. It's going to cost someone money and it's not going to help you develop efficiency and business skills. You need to give yourself constraints and parameters. Sure, some things simply take longer and you need to work out how you're going to deal with that in your practice, but you cannot adopt the unlimited time mindset as part of what you're doing in day-to-day -day practice. And the last thing I wanted to mention is this habit. Predominantly in law school, you have adopted the habit of working by yourself as a silo. You haven't been forced to communicate with others where you're at, what you're doing, how it's going. And this is a very dangerous habit to bring into legal practice. Legal practice is difficult, it is complicated, and it is high pressure. So while in law school, with the exception of the very tedious group assignments that you will have sometimes received, you have largely worked by yourself. You have been beholden only to yourself and you haven't been required to communicate. That isn't going to work in a team dynamic in a law firm. When someone asks you to do something, you need to reply to them and say, yes, okay, I'm on it. Or, sorry, I'm just working on this thing for someone else. Which would you like to give me, uh, me to give priority to? Or how long would you like me to spend on this? Or when do you need it? You need to communicate with the other person 
who you are working with or the other people that you are working with. Otherwise, especially in this environment where a lot of people are working from home, they have no idea what's going on. If I send an email to you saying, can you please do this thing? And I send that at 7 a.m. And at 1 p.m. I haven't heard a thing. Should I assume A, you're working on it? B, you're not working on it. You had to work on something else. C, you're away sick. D, you've resigned and you're actually working somewhere else and nobody told me. I don't know what to think if you don't give me that feedback. If something is taking longer than you anticipated, then you need to communicate that. If you think maybe a deadline cannot be met, you need to communicate that. This is a client service industry. Everything you are working on flows around the idea that client expectations about delivery are being managed by someone. And if that's not you, your ability to feed back internally is effectively your way of managing that client process. The best way to think about it while you are not necessarily dealing day to day with clients directly, is to consider the person delegating to you as your client. What would they want to hear? What would you want to hear? If you ring up and leave a message wanting to book, book a plumber, would you rather A, they phone you or email you or text you to confirm that booking, or B, they just rock up at some point at a different time than you were expecting because that's when they had the next available slot. I know which I'd prefer. You need to adopt that service mentality as well. You can't work in isolation. You need to be part of that team for delivering a service to the client. Okay, those are the three biggies I see coming through or tending to come through in law students who are making that transition. They are not insurmountable. They are not even particularly difficult. They just involve being aware of it, someone communicating that to you. So I've now done that and now you don't have any excuses. Happy lawyering and I'll see you next time.